I'm Rob Trasinski. This is Salon of the Refuse, where we talk about ideas that are outside the mainstream. My guest today is Brad Thompson, who's a professor of political science at Clemson University and also the author of this book, America's Revolutionary Mind, uh, about the uh, well, about the ideas behind the founding of America. But I'll let him talk about that. Uh, thanks for coming on, Brad. Hi, Rob. It's uh, great to be with you and your audience. I appreciate coming on. Uh, it's great to have you because I've really been enjoying this book. So I want to talk about the book first and talk about, so it's called America's Revolutionary Mind, and it's based on this idea of the American mind. So can you explain what where that comes from? Yeah, so the idea um, of the title comes from really the confluence of two famous quotations um, from the founding era, one by John Adams and the other by Thomas Jefferson. The one by John Adams, uh, when he was trying to uh, explain what the American Revolution was and what its causes were, he, he said that the American Revolution was not the war. He said the real revolution took place in the minds of the American people 15 years before a shot was ever fired at Lexington and Concord, which then means he's dating the beginning of the American Revolution to 1760, which is interesting in and of itself. And maybe we can talk about that later. The second quotation comes from Thomas Jefferson, um, who right at the very end of his life, in describing the Declaration of Independence, described it as, quote, an expression of the American mind. And so when, when I was thinking about these two quotations and what their meaning was relative to the American Revolution, it actually occurred to me that in many ways, despite the revolution being one of the most, if not the most written about subject in American history, that we actually know very little about the deepest causes, nature, and meaning of the revolution. Because if we can't explain what John Adams meant when he said that the revolution was in the minds of the people 15 years before Concord and Lexington, and then he went on to say that that revolution was a moral revolution in the minds of the American people. And as far as I could tell, no historians had really ever attempted to um, explain uh, the revolution in those terms. So that was, a, that was a key insight. And so what I did, Rob, with this book is I took these two quotations and, uh, on, and, and the book really operates on two levels. So on one level, I'm beginning with the Thomas Jefferson quotation, talking about the declaration as an expression of the American mind. So the book is a close textual analysis of the Declaration of Independence. I go that, that's, that's what I wanted to mention is that that's what I found fascinating about the way the book was written. It caught me a little bit of surprise. It basically takes that second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, the, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, et cetera, and takes that apart and takes that like word by word, phrase by phrase saying, well, what did they mean by self-evident truth? You know, what did they mean by men are created equal? Uh, so I, I thought that was fascinating. Just taking it like word by word, phrase by phrase, and looking at the philosophical background of each of those. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So what I end up doing is using the Declaration of Independence as an ideological roadmap by which to understand the revolution as a whole. 
So as you say, um, uh, I, I take basically uh, every word, every phrase, every sentence uh, of the declaration and I give it a fairly close textual analysis. And so you mentioned um, uh, the second paragraph that begins famously with, um, we hold these truths to be self-evident. So I devote an entire chapter uh, to just that phrase. What does it mean to say that we hold these truths to be self-evident? What does self-evident mean? What does truth mean? Who are the we in we hold these truths? What does it mean to hold a truth, right? And then um, the then that, that phrase is followed by four self-evident truths. And so then what I do is I devote two chapters to each of the four self-evident truths. And the four self-evident truths can be, each can be summed up in one word, equality, rights, consent, and revolution. So I take, let's just take, um, take rights, for instance, the second self-evident truth. So I devote two chapters to the concept of rights. And I then, and this is where then I go outside and beyond the Declaration of Independence. And I give a kind of intellectual history of the concept of rights from the late 17th century, beginning with John Locke, and then trace how Locke's understanding of rights was transported across the Atlantic in the early uh, decades of the 18th century. And then I examined how uh, American colonials, then um, how they attempted to understand and implement the concept of rights in colonial America, and then most importantly, then examine um, how uh, American patriots in the 1760s, in, in the light of the Stamp Act crisis, how they then revolutionized the traditional understanding of rights. And then I take it, of course, right up to 1776. And I do that with all four of the self-evident truths. Now, I, I wanna follow up on what you just said there, because there's some things you say in the book about how the concept of rights was looked at in England as more of a traditional and historical approach to rights, whereas in America, it became very much more distinctly a natural approach, the idea that rights are come from nature and not from history and compacts and the Magna Carta. Yeah, that, no, that's, that's exactly right. And in many ways, the, the intellectual and moral revolution that John Adams referenced in, in the famous quotation that I use as my starting point for the book is he's, he's, he's actually referring, I think, to that moment. And, it, and it, you know, it really begins in 1765 um, with the Stamp Act. And so the, the, the Stamp Act passed by the British Parliament um, declares that that the that the Americans have to pay what was actually, to be honest, a, a, a relatively minor tax on stamped paper that would be used in uh, in all legal proceedings, right? And the Americans found this to be offensive um, because it was a violation of their historic right of Englishmen which was to not be taxed without representation. So in, you know, in 1765, most American revolutionaries or patriots, they actually began with the older English conception of rights. That is to say that, they're, that they are the inheritors of the so-called rights of Englishmen. 
and the rights of Englishmen are the rights of a particular people at a particular place at a particular time. They are rights that have, that have grown um, and evolved over the course of many, many centuries, right? Dating back to even before Magna Carta, right? So the Americans are the proud inheritors of that conception of rights, but they realize in 1765 that that, 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 that understanding of rights is insufficient to, to help them combat British legislation. So they start looking for uh, a, a, a new understanding of rights that is less um, in history, as it were, that right. is, in fact, one might even say outside of or transcends history. That is to say, it's a view of rights um, that is grounded in nature, and nature is absolute, certain, permanent, universal. And that, I think, is that's the critical moment in the revolutionary mind. You know, that, that's interesting because, uh, you know, there's the, the really what the, it's tying into is what's called sometimes derisively, though I think it shouldn't be derisive, the Whig interpretation of history, which is that the idea that, that there, there's ancient Anglo-Saxon uh, approach to government that is then, you know, worked forward through English history that produces, that leads up to the great triumph of the glorious revolution uh, of 1689. And that's the basis, the foundation for English rights. And it strikes me that in America, there was a somewhat different situation and that being basically locks man in the state of nature, <laughs> actually having being in the real life, real world version of that, they don't have to ground everything on this history going back a thousand years. They can ground it on, well, here we are, we're the men in the state of nature, we can ground it on those Lockean arguments. That No, that's exactly right. Um, and through the 1760s and then into the 1770s, certainly by 1775, these American colonists actually did literally view themselves to be in a Lockean state of nature. And they said so. They, they explicitly said that because Britain has, and more particularly George III, has withdrawn uh, its protection of the British uh, colonials in America, that they are without government. And in effect, the, uh, the Massachusetts Government Act of 1774 so radically changed the nature of the government in Massachusetts that it, in, in effect, it abolished government and it created a military, uh, a military government. And so the Americans, yeah, they, they said, we're, we, we, are, we are now in a state of nature we, and, and we must now begin to build new governments de novo. Now, you talk about this being grounded in uh, reason and nature and this very enlightenment uh, era attitude of we can, you know, we can rationally arrive at certain conclusions by looking at nature. Now, the interesting thing is that, that uh, Adam's quote about uh, the real revolution being 15 years earlier talked about it being a revolution in our sense of religious duties, I think, as he puts it. So it was a religious revolution in a way. And that leads to something, you know, how, how do you have this sort of very secular enlightenment approach and it also being a religious approach? And that really raises the question, I think, that is not really very much unappreciated today, which is the grounding of this in an enlightenment version of what was called natural religion. Yeah. 
So that's now you've asked a really hard question uh, and and a question that is undoubtedly worth another book, because I will tell you um, that some of my uh, some of my, um, for lack of a better term, Catholic Tradcon critics of, of the book have have claimed that, you know, my revolution is all enlightenment, no religion, uh, which is not true, um, obviously in the 1760s and 1770s and really throughout the entire 18th and 19th centuries, you know, the vast, vast majority, 95, 98% plus of all Americans were religious. They were Christians. That, that's simply a fact. No one, no one doubts that. But the more, I think, important and interesting story is how, revolu how Christianity evolved throughout the course of the 18th century, right? So, the the uh, American Christians say of this uh, of the 1760s were, were not your John Winthrop Puritans uh, of of 1630, right? right? They in fact rejected uh, almost entirely the political thought of the 17th century uh, Puritans. So the the really important story here, I think, is that be beginning sometime in the early 18th century say in the 1720s and certainly picking up speed in the 1730s, you get um, European, more particularly English enlightenment ideas coming to the 13 colonies and being adopted by America's best colleges, Harvard, Yale, Brown, Princeton, were, were drinking deeply from the well of 17th and 18th century enlightenment thought. So they were reading, they were reading Bacon, Bacon's Novum Organum. They were reading Newton's Principia Mathematica. They were reading John Locke's essay concerning human understanding. And, and, and what happened was th that the Americans really started rethinking what the nature of nature is uh, and they and what the laws of nature are, and and all American revolutionaries, Christian or not, accepted the idea that there are certain scientific or physical laws of nature, and they accept, accepted them as true, right? And that very fact, in and of itself, of course, begins to undermine the traditional uh, Puritan or Calvinist right. understanding. Uh, of nature with with an omniscient uh, omnipotent god who can who can smash the laws of nature whenever he he feels like it but more importantly the americans uh began to think seriously that not only are there scientific laws of nature but there can be there there are moral laws of nature and so what they did was they then took the, the scientific method of Bacon and Newton, and then they started applying it to human things, right? And they started looking out at nature. So you can see this, for instance, in the early diaries uh, of John Adams when he was a student at Harvard University. Um, and, and Adams uh, was, was, you know, he's writing in his diary uh, about reading Newton's Principia, reading Locke's essay, and then attempting himself to look out into the world, right, and observe human nature inductively, and examine um, examine human passions, examine human actions, 
And then fr from this broad-based observation, then to try and induce certain moral rules um, of, of human action. And now, Adams, um, Adams was a Christian, and he was a Christian throughout his entire life. But the, here's the point, Rob, is that the Enlightenment had a profound impact on American Christianity. Right. So, sure, my conservative Christian critics can say, don't forget uh, that um, that uh, American revolutionaries were Christians. Of course they were. But the real question is, how what was their Christianity relative to what it had been 100 years before? Right. And it had clearly changed under the influence of the Enlightenment. Yeah, it, it's I think it's a curious thing how is that I think that what happened is that it's a it's a sort of a historical dead end in a way that that enlightenment view of natural religion you know the natural the natural part of re natural religion was the idea that um you know like for example uh they, they would talk about natural versus revealed religion so revealed religion is religious principles gotten taken from the bible taken from revelation and natural right. religion was religious principles taken from secular observation of nature and it was this almost like halfway house or this this pro halfway house between religious belief and a totally secular worldview or, a, or some sort of integration between the two. And it's almost like that was sort of a philosophical historical dead end that by you know the middle of the 19th century, people who were secular had gone completely secular and people who, and mostly to the left and people who were uh, religious had gone sort of back to a more old fashioned revelation based uh, approach to religion. Yeah, no, I think, I think that is exactly right. So in the end, I mean, I think what happened at the highest level of both philosophical and theological reflection was that, you know, uh, the most enlightened um, uh, 18th century uh, American Christians who were now drinking deeply from the well of uh, modern science, Bacon and Newton, but in the end, they came to realize that if on the one hand, your faith tells you that there can be talking snakes, burning bushes that talk and do not consume themselves, virgins giving birth, men walking on water and the dead rising, how can that be, how can that be understood in the light of the scientific laws of nature? And obviously it can't be, right? So. There, there was this tension that had been built into uh, this attempted reconciliation of reason and revelation. And I think you're absolutely right. What happens by the, by the middle of the 19th century is that they either go completely secular uh, or they go to, they attempt to restore an older kind of faith-based uh, religion without the Enlightenment. Now, um, I want to go back a little bit to this issue of taking apart the Declaration of Independence, talking about the different ideas in it. And I really was fascinated by your analysis of equality. And I think it's the most misunderstood or most misused uh, part of the Declaration of Independence today, uh, you know, particularly in the sort of welfare state context. So I want you to talk a little bit about what is it exactly that equality meant to the founders? Right. So maybe the easiest way to get into this is to explain what it doesn't mean, because obviously the concept of equality has been completely corrupted over the course of the last uh, 225 years. So equality 
did not mean uh, that you that you have uh, that you should be equal in all respects. Equality does not mean sameness. Equality does not mean that all men should have the same stuff. Um, the founders uh, understood equality in a very precise sense. Uh, e equality was actually it was less a moral prescription than it simply was a description of human nature. And um, it's, it's what I call, they adopted, actually this idea comes originally from Locke. They, they held what I call a view of species equality. So all human beings are, the member, are members of the same species and that species should be contrasted with all other species. So in other words, all men are the same in that they are not dogs or horses. So the, then the question is, in what way are all men the same? What do they share in common? And the most important attributes that they share in common are one, reason, and two, free will. And this is what distinguishes all humans uh, from all other um, uh, animate beings. Now, this is where it gets both interesting and a little more complicated. So they so they they had what i call an understanding of qualitative equality in the sense that i just laid it out that all human beings share the same fundamental qualities reason and uh, and free will however they also recognized that there are but that there are quantitative differences right um, not all individuals uh, share the same uh, intelligence they, there are radical differences in terms of not just intelligence, but strength, speed, beauty, um, all kinds of measurable concepts. So in what sense then are they equal and how should that equality be understood in a social political sense? Well, the bottom line is uh, for the founders that equality means one thing and one thing only. It means that all individuals are equal in their right to be self-owning and self-governing, right? So no, the, the, what that means is no man is by nature the ruler of another and no man is by nature the slave of another. All individuals are self-governing. And, and what, what that means when you, when you unpack it is that all individuals have equal rights. So equality is really an adjective. Uh, they have equal rights. The, the fundamental point is that they have rights. Well, yeah, describing this adjective, you also, I was very gratified to see that you referred to George Mason's, I think it's Declaration of the Rights in Virginia, where he actually turns it into an adverb. He says, all men are equally free yes. and independent. And it's the free and independent part that's the focus. And the equal is just a description of that. Exactly. That's precisely right. Yeah. So um, now, uh, you know, so today, Rob actually is the 60th interview uh, that I've done in the last year on, on the book. Uh -huh. um, and, and I can tell you that 99% of all the interviews have focused almost entirely on uh, equality and slavery. I was going to ask right. about slavery. And, and, I was going to ask about slavery because yeah. so, I, I you had a really interesting approach to that. So go ahead. 
Right. So the obvious question is, and to be to be perfectly honest, I, I did not have, intend when I originally set out to write the book to have a chapter on slavery. Um, I was just going to have a chapter on equality and then a chapter or two chapters on rights and consent and revolution. But after I wrote the equality chapter, you know, it, it just was weighing on me. And, and, and I knew, I knew that every reviewer would, would say, how can Thompson write a book on the declaration and have a whole chapter on equality and not take up the issue of slavery? So I wrote this chapter uh, and it turns out, and, and it was, the, I think just about almost the last chapter I wrote. Um, and, and I wrote it very quickly in, in a couple of weeks. Um, and it's, it's a chapter that attempts to address uh, an entirely legitimate question, an important question, which is how could the American founding fathers declare equality and rights as self-evident truths and yet own slaves, right? How do you square that circle? That's the question. And the answer to the question is very complicated. Um, I mean, the first thing to say is that you know, despite what the people of the 1619 Project want to argue, it's not true that all American revolutionaries were slaveholders. It's not true that America was founded on the basis of slavery. What, what is true is that in 1776, there was a, an, a, a fairly broad spectrum of views on, on slavery. So at one end of the spectrum, you get people like John Adams, for instance, who never owned a slave and was a lifelong opponent of the institution of slavery. And then, um, then you get uh, people like Benjamin Franklin and John Jay, who, um, who at one point had owned a house slave, what were called house slaves. That is people you know, who weren't out working in the fields, but who were ser essentially served as servants in the house, though they were, it is absolutely true, they were slaves. But then Franklin and Jay freed uh, their slaves and then went on to become a leading advocates of the anti-slavery movement. Then you get people like George Washington, for instance, who obviously was a slave owner, but who upon his death in his will, um, freed his slaves after the death of, of his wife, Martha. And there were many, many uh, slaveholders who did free their slaves, um, uh, either at the time or upon their death. And then finally, then you get to the hard case, right? And the hard, the hard case comes in the form of Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry, right? Who were the two most, well, Jefferson was the author of the declaration and, um, and, and Patrick Henry was, was the author uh, or the spokesman of probably the most famous slogan of the revolution, which was give me liberty or give me death, right? So how can these two men be, own slaves? Well, it, it, it's very complicated. The first thing to say is that Jefferson and um, uh, Patrick Henry, um, they knew that slavery was wrong. They knew it was immoral and they said so. They condemned it uh, in writing as, as, as immoral and as anathema to the revolution. And they did so, they knew because it violated rights. Jefferson said, slavery is wrong because it's a violation of rights. So why didn't they free their slaves? That's the, that's the big question. 
Well, there are several, several reasons. The first is they thought that slavery would die a natural death, right? They thought they assumed that slavery was on the way out and that it was going to die this natural death. But the real issue was this, it's what I call the post emancipation problem, right? And so it's easy for us in the 21st century to look back on the 18th century and condemn uh, American founders, uh, those who held slaves. But the real issue is, yeah, okay, sure, yes, we want to free we want to free our slaves. But the question is, how do you do it? How do you do it in a way that, um, well, the, here's the bottom line: How do you do it in a way that doesn't cause a race war? That was the principal worry of uh, those revolutionaries. I mean, who were both slaveholders and non-slaveholders. Um, they understood that there probably would be a race war, or potentially they feared a race war. And they, Jefferson was quite clear that at that point, then it's then 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 whites um, would, even though they are in the wrong, the law of self-preservation says they have a right to defend themselves. Um, and and more particularly, the question was, all right, if we free our slaves, then what? Free them to what? Where? When? How? Right? And they 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 just couldn't think their way through the problem. Uh, I think there are ways to think through the, the problem, but in the context of their time, they couldn't. And the final thing to say is that it is important, I think, as I try to do in the book, to also recognize that that. Uh, the, the moral evil of slavery, and I think we should condemn those founding fathers who were slave owners um, for having committed this heinous moral crime, which I think, Rob, I think it can be summed up in, in this way. And this is a very bitter pill uh, for us to have to swallow. And I can put it to you in this way. One of Thomas, uh, this is a hypothetical, Thomas, one of Thomas Jefferson's slaves escapes from Monticello and spends three days fleeing through forests and swamps. And after three days, Thomas Jefferson catches up to him on horseback. And it's just the two of them alone together in a forest. The question is this. Does the slave, the, the runaway slave, have the moral right to kill Thomas Jefferson? Well, yeah, absolutely. Think, he would. Yeah. Of course he would. Of course he would. Right. So that. So the final point there was that uh, um, I have, in the book, attempted to explain the profound complexity of dealing with the slavery issue at that time. But that still doesn't mean, however, that we don't in the 21st century have a, a, um, a historical scholarly moral obligation to condemn it for what it was. Now, let me just say, let me just say one last thing. And that is, 
and I can talk about this more if you'd like, if you want to follow up, but it's also important to make clear that the Declaration of Independence and the American Revolution is the single greatest force in human history for abolition. For, well, that, for freeing the slaves. That's what I was going to follow up on, which is the the thing that I got the most interesting thing I got out of your out of your chapter on slavery, is the fact that the the revolution, you know, created this conflict uh, of natural equality versus slavery, and in a way, it that this talking about this moral revolution that happened, you know, for fifteen years before seventeen seventy six, it was sort of accompanied by almost a kind of anti-slavery awakening that there were not, you know, prior to 1760, there were not anti-slavery laws or anti-slavery uh, organizations in America. And after that, there are. Absolutely. The, the, the revolution, as I said, is the single most important catalyst for starting an anti, first an anti-slavery movement uh, in, in America, and then ultimately an abolitionist movement. Now, what's the history of this? So um, you get at the time of the revolution, just before 1776, you get the creation of the first ever anti-slavery societies in the United States. And then post declaration of independence, every single state in the North passed laws, uh, what were called gradual abolition laws, mm -hmm. so that by 1803, every state in the North um, had abolished slavery. Um, and then at the federal level, uh, the, 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 the articles, the, the government under the Articles, uh, articles of Confederation uh, passed the Northwest Ordinance, which forbade the extension of slavery into the Northwest territories. Um, and then built into the Constitution was the, the, the slave trade clause, which uh, abolished the, uh, the, the international slave trade to America um, beginning in the year 1808. So they deferred, yes, not good, but the more important point is that they, they attempted to abolish the slave trade. Um, and, and, and the fact, the other fact of the matter is, um, even in Virginia, um, between, I believe, 1780 and 1790, 10,000 slaves were freed, and 100,000 slaves were freed in all of America um, just after 1800. So there's no question that the revolution and the Declaration of Independence uh, were the catalyst for the anti-slavery abolition movement. I also think that people underestimate the effect of the, the ban on the slave trade because of what it did is it severed the last of the economic incentives that the North had, uh, the, last of the last of the economic connections they had to slavery in the sense that you know Northern uh, traders and merchants could no longer profit from the slave trade. And, you know, it's, it's such a stark pattern that the Southern states don't undergo this moral awakening and the Northern states do. And it clearly has a lot to do with the economic incentives. And in, in severing those right. economic incentives for the North, you sort of make the turn again and, and banning it in the West, you make the outnumbering of the South on slavery inevitable eventually. Right. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Of course, the big problem, uh, which, which was the kink in the works on all of this, was the invention of the cotton gin. Yeah. Uh, in, the, in the 1790s, right, and and that that gave a rebirth 
to the institution an economic rebirth to the institution of slavery because it allowed slavery to um, you know certainly cotton production via the institution of slavery to become economically viable, uh, which then allowed it to extend right beyond the original thirteen states into um, you know into the, the the what would become the new states of of Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Now, now let's go from so this has sort of the the left's critique of the founding era and founding ideas as, oh, well, they were hypocrites, they didn't really mean it. Uh, Although usually that's used to mean, therefore we should all, you know, the fact that they didn't live up to their ideals means we should throw out their ideals. Uh, But the sort of right of center critique is uh, this idea of, well, you know, the the founding was actually very religious and you're making it to enlightenment era. And one thing that really uh, jumped out at this is, you know, a couple of years ago, there were a bunch of books about the enlightenment that came out. Um, you know, and I find an interesting pattern that, so you had Jonah Goldberg did a thing about the Enlightenment, and he's a sort of traditional 20th century conservatives, and he sort of made the Enlightenment seem like it's totally compatible with, with 20th century conservatism. And then Stephen Pinker has a book on the Enlightenment and makes it seem like the Enlightenment ideals are totally compatible with sort of standard left of center 20th century sort of Clinton liberalism. Uh, and at the time I wrote something, uh, it was based on, on uh, a book done by Pat Mullins on Jonathan Mayhew, one of the people you talk about, who's one of these, you know, natural religion, enlightenment era uh, uh, um, clergymen in, who very influential on John Adams in New England. And I said, I felt kind of sheepish because it's almost like I'm writing this and making out the founding fathers to sound like objectivists. You know, it sound like they're all sort of proto Ayn Rand uh, people talking about reason and uh, self-interest and uh, 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 and, and individual rights and, and, and all that sort of thing. And so I sort of want to say for, for the audience of people, it, you, you, you've emboldened me to not feel so sheepish about that because you know this basically takes that and shows that it's not just Mayhew, it's all of them had a lot of these ideas that are kind of you know, in an enlightenment strain that is somewhat similar to what would in today's context be objectivist ideas. Uh, and uh, so I wanted to sort of say for for those who know Ayn Rand, let's talk about the the similarity between the Enlightenment ideas of, of the founding era and the Ayn Rand's philosophy versus what are the differences? Right. So um, l- let me just first say that uh, in, in contrast to some of my critics and presumably your critics as well, um, and that is, um, I actually believe, unlike them, in evidence-based history, right? I think evidence is, is, is actually important. Um, and what my book does, you know, it's a fr- relatively long book, about 420 pages with hundreds and hundreds of footnotes. And so th- this is not an exercise um, in wish fulfillment for me. <laughs> Uh, in, in demonstrating that the American founding was, was an enlightenment founding, despite the fact that all Americans at that time were Christians and took their Christianity quite seriously. The two things are not necessarily, at least historically, incompatible. The, the fact is that they, they did exist. Um, uh, but what happened was, of course, as you noted earlier, ideas have consequences and they work themselves out over time to sort of their logical endpoints. Uh, and then what had been an attempted synthesis of Christianity and the enlightenment began to tear apart. But 
the question that you asked though is um, about the ideas proposed by the founding fathers and their relationship to Ayn Rand. Well, I think, you know, Ayn Rand was the first person to say that, that certainly her, the ideas of her political philosophy uh, were first expressed, um, not in the way that she did fully, but they were first expressed in some form by America's founding fathers and including the intellectual godfather of the American Revolution, John Locke. So on, on that level, uh, I, I think there are quite clear uh, similarities. I mean, in other words, I don't think that the, that the difference between the Founding Fathers and Ayn Rand on certainly political matters is a difference of kind. It's only a difference of degree um, and barely a difference of degree. And or, it's or also it, the case- Or to put it differently, Ayn Rand was an Enlightenment philosopher, right? a philosopher in the tradition of the Enlightenment. One could say even going further that she is the epitome, that mm -hmm. she is in a sense the the, to put it in Hegelian terms, the endpoint uh, of Enlightenment history. Um, and now, look, um, their view of the nature of reality, uh, that is to say, metaphysics, their metaphysical views, their view of reason uh, and its role in human affairs, uh, I, I don't think it's, it's a appropriate or fair really to compare their views of metaphysics and epistemology to Ayn Rand's, right? It's, it, 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 it's more, I think it's more important to compare their views of metaphysics and epistemology to all those who came before them. Mm -hmm. um, so relative to Ayn Rand, their, their views, they had what we might call proto-objectivist views right. on reason and, and, uh, nature of nature and comes with their ethics. And so I think you can, and as I've tried to show in the book, I think more than any other book ever written on the American Revolution, I do demonstrate the, the very high degree to which they developed um, an, an ethical theory of, of individualism and, and of, of individual rights um, and of the pursuit of happiness, right? So there's lots in their, their views um, that I, I think um, historically and chronologically speaking, all point towards Ayn Rand's conception of, of, um, of enlightened self-interest, right? And I mean, they, they were to a certain degree, or at least some of them were, uh, proponents of what I call enlightened self-interest or self-interest rightly understood. But did they go the full way? Did they go as far as Ayn Rand? No, they did not. Mm -hmm. And here's where you see, I think, the, the, the real tension in their thought. The, morally speaking, they were also, they had a strong dose of what we would call altruism. Uh, that we, and this comes from their Christianity, which says that, you know, that we have moral obligations to serve the needs uh, of, of, of other people. And that even, which means the obverse of that is that others have needs that must be met and satisfied uh, by the rest of us. And, and I think that tension in their thought 
um, because they didn't fully themselves, and I'm not blaming them for not working out that tension, but the fact is the tension existed or it, really a contradiction in their moral thought existed. And going into, that into the 19th century, that moral contradiction was exploited. Uh, and uh, and the, the individualism of their ethical theory was abandoned for altruism and moral collectivism. Yeah, it's actually interesting that the, the term altruism, they couldn't have been altruists in that set in the direct sense because the term hadn't been coined yet. It was like an ex very extreme version of anti-individualism that was invented in the 18, roughly 1830s, 1840s, somewhere in there uh, by Auguste Comte. So it's like taking that element of, you know, of proto-altruism in the founders and that as you said, the ideas have consequences. They tend to develop to their most extreme versions. And that's something that developed to its most extreme version. That brings us to the question, actually, of the, you know, the last chapter of this, one of the last chapters of this book is, has America lost its, its American mind? <laughs> I, I think in, in today's context, we just say, has America lost its mind? But uh, I want you to talk just a little bit about how did that happen? How it is that the, the ideas that were considered almost universally accepted among the founders came to not be as universally accepted? Right. So first, a shout out to my wife, uh, who came up with that wonderful title for the epilogue, Has America Lost Its American Mind? The title that I originally had for it was much more boring and academic-like. Um, I think it's a, her title was brilliant. Um, so that it, this is the epilogue to the book. And what, it, what the epilogue does is it looks at the critics of the Declaration of Independence the 19th and 20th century critics. And it begins with a fairly substantial discussion of the 19th century pro-slavery critique of the Declaration of Independence. So all of America's founding fathers, including slave owners like Jefferson and Patrick Henry, they all believed that slavery was, quote, a necessary evil, with the emphasis on the word evil. Um, by the late 1830s and certainly into the 40s and 50s, Southern slaveholders had had a dramatic uh, change of mind on the question of, of slavery. Slavery was now going to be defended as what they called a positive good. And beginning in the late uh, 1830s, they started to develop uh, a new philosophy uh, which would justify, um, which would justify what they called the peculiar institution, and this new philosophy had its roots in German Romanticism, beginning most importantly with uh, uh, the 19th century uh, German philosopher Hegel, and Hegel's ideas, uh, as well as the ideas of other uh, German philosophers and thinkers at the time, were brought to America. Uh, in 1830, um, in a, 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 an American uh, Southerner attended Hegel's lectures on the history of philosophy at the University of Berlin, brought those ideas back to America, and, and they used those ideas to critique principles of the Declaration of Independence. So first they critique the idea of truth, truth with a capital T, the idea that truth can be absolute, certain, permanent, and universal. Uh, and they replaced it with this idea of historicism, which says that um, truth is historically contingent on particular places and particular times. 
And so what might have been true uh, in 1776 is no longer true in 1839. And, uh, and what, what is true in 1839, they believed, is that, is that the slave South was, uh, in Hegelian terms, the end point of history. Um, so th they saw history as pointing toward, ultimately, towards slavery. And so th they went, they, they literally went through the Declaration's Four Truths after uh, abandoning the concept of capital T truth, and they rejected categorically the self-evident truth of equality. They now defended the idea of inequality, and they rejected the idea of rights, uh, of, of rights that are absolute, permanent, and universal for historic rights, rights that evolve over time. They rejected the idea of consent and obviously the idea of, of revolution. <laughs> but here's the really interesting thing, Rob. By the 1850s, Southern intellectuals had become so radicalized in German philosophy that some of their leading exponents, like the, the, the person who I think was their, their most theoretically sophisticated thinker, George Fitzhugh. By the 1850s, George Fitzhugh um, leveled what we might call a pre-Marxian critique of capitalism. And so they, be, they became, these Southern intellectuals became the, the, the harshest critics imaginable of capitalism using all of the arguments that Marx would, would use in, in Capital. And then on top of that, George Fitzhugh and others began to defend the institution of slavery and the Southern plantation as quote unquote, and I'm literally quoting from Fitzhugh, the beau ideal of communism. Uh. So this is now the great justification of the institution of slavery, is that it is, it is the ultimate expression of socialism, right? And then the second half of the epilogue takes up the arguments of late 19th and early 20th century progressives, like most importantly, John Dewey, Herbert Crowley, Woodrow Wilson. And what was really interesting is that they level the same kinds of critiques against the Declaration of Independence that these pro-slavery Southerners had used in the 1840s and 1850s. You know, that's interesting because it kind of brings us up in a way to the present because we're seeing almost a similar kind of thing happening now and here's why I want to talk, spend a few minutes actually give you yeah. an opportunity to, to uh, promote your, your Substack blog. Uh, and it, it's called Redneck Intellectual. And I want to know, uh, uh, does Canada produce rednecks? <laughs> of course they do. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, it, it's a different kind of redneck, uh, to be sure. Uh, but yeah, there, there, are, there are Canadian rednecks. Um, and then there are also Canadian rednecks who um, who move to the deep south and, uh, and 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 fit right in. And and I don't mean that in in, in any pejorative sense. Um, I live now in in South Carolina, and I, I feel pretty much at home here. Um, yeah. 
as a transported Canadian, because at least, you know, Southerners like Canadians have a certain appreciation for politeness. Yes. So, but, so as a transplanted Canadian slash South Carolinian uh, redneck, uh, the, your blog is called the Redneck Intellectual, and you've been taking on there the sort of nationalist conservatives who are doing the same sort of transition from, uh, uh, to, from, from the found, you know, the conservatism of the last 40, 50 years has been very focused around the founding fathers and the, the founding tradition. And they're going through this process almost all over again of rejecting that in favor of inequality and in favor of nationalism and collectivism and an anti-capitalist ideology. And you've been taking that on on your blog. I have been. Um, and it, uh, it all began last May when I published an essay um, titled The Rise and Fall uh, of the Pajama Boy Nietzscheans. And that essay went viral, and uh, I was the subject of uh, great Twitter abuse uh, for her for uh, several months. And then um, I think to date, there have been, well, certainly over 20, maybe 22, 25 essays that have been published in response to the Pajama Boy Nietzschean's essay. And then on top of it, um, I started, I created my Substack, the Redneck Intellectual, and started writing a series of essays in response to my critics. And uh, those that I call the Pajama Boy Nietzscheans are what I also call the reactionary right, uh, which is a kind of new, um, po certainly political, if not intellectual movement on the right. And I break the reactionary right down into two uh, subgroups. On the one hand, there are the what I call the Catholic tradcons or tradcaths, as they're sometimes called, um, and and then on the other hand, the, the much more curious group that is the followers, the online right followers of the pseudonymously named Bronze Age pervert, um, and um, and so my argument is that both of these groups who, by the way, hate each other, uh, they share one thing in common with each other and with the left and the 1619 Project, which is a rejection of the principles and institutions of the American founding. And they, they all want, in a sense, a new founding, a new founding which rejects uh, 1776 and which imports new ideas, uh, it, it, which creates uh, a, a new American regime based either on the ideas of Catholic integralism, which is to say, uh, they basically want a Catholic monarchy uh, in the United States. Uh, and then on the other hand, the, the followers of the Bronze Age pervert, uh, the, the perv himself has called for a military state um, and he's developed this kind of um, uh, infantile uh, Nietzschean philosophy uh, that seeks to liberate uh, what he calls the vitalism of, of individuals against, and I certainly appreciate, against nihilism and egalitarianism, but what he is calling for in, in place of the, the principles of the founding is um, something that one might say flirts with fascism. 
Um, and he's, he's, you know, his political heroes are Franco and um, um, Edward Stroessner and uh, Mussolini, right? And I think and that's maybe a little more than for a new keyword. Yeah, it's a little more than flirting with fascism, but but that's the Bronze Age part. I mean, you know, it's a good thing the camera's been on you for most of this time because I have a hard time keeping a straight face even talking about the a guy who calls himself Bronze Age pervert. But it's the Bronze Age part that fascinates me because conservatives have for so long been steeped in this uh, this thing about how we're the defenders of Western civilization. We're the defenders not just of America, but of Western civilization. And here's the guy saying, no, let's throw out all of Western civilization, everything since the Greeks. Let's throw that all out and go back to the Bronze Age. I mean, it's, it's a primitivist kind of philosophy. And it's hard to take Bronze Age pervert seriously, but this has a certain cachet. I'm seeing the impact it's having on much more mainstream conservatism. So I think the big question is what went wrong with conservatism that it was so vulnerable to this? Yeah, that's a, that's a great and a very important question. So you have to understand, yeah, how and why uh, these two factions of the reactionary right arose. And, and I think it arose because there was a kind of intellectual and political vacuum on the right. Uh, that, was self, that was a kind of uh, self-induced intellectual sapuco. Uh, of, of the establishment right, that is to say, conservatism and libertarianism, Inc. Um, had really, I mean, they, they had become feckless, intellectually and politically feckless, unable to stand up to, uh, uh, successfully unable to stand up to uh, the totalitarian left. And so these two movements um, really, I think, in, are in part, if not large part, born of the failure of the establishment right to fight the left, mm -hmm. right? So I, 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 I do think that, um, uh, and I, I think they're right about that. I think, I think the establishment right um, has failed uh, to I, fight I would the left. Say I would say it's not just a failure of the establishment right to to um, to fight the left, but also the failure of the establishment right to fully appreciate and and absorb and start from the ideas that they were given by the founding fathers. And that's oh, why I yeah. think your book is so important. Yeah, without question. I mean, you know, you know, by by 2010, if not earlier, they were just repeating stale slow. They were just treating the principles of the Declaration of Independence as stale slogans. That's, that's, that's all it was, right? They had no understanding uh, of, of those principles uh, at, at all. Yeah. And so, you know, my book um, was, was really an attempt to resurrect uh, on, a, on a deep philosophic basis, the principles and institutions of the American founding. So in other words, you, you might say my, my goal in writing the book was to make the American founding great again. <laughs> well, I think you've done a great job. I'm re really enjoying reading this, getting a lot out of it. Uh, and I think that is it the big project to sort of save, uh, I won't say the American right, but save a pro-freedom movement in America is to, you know, a great place to start is to go back to really fully, deeply understanding uh, the founding fathers. So thanks so much for coming on today to talk about that. Rob, thank you so much. Have a great day.
If you enjoyed this interview, you can find more ideas and analysis at the Trusinski Letter, www.trusinskiletter.com. You can also support us at Patreon uh, at patreon.com slash Salon of the Refused. And you should also follow our podcast and uh, our YouTube channel. I'm Rob Trusinski. Thank you for listening.